This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't find anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. The first burlesque show that appeared in the United States was in the mid-1800s. By the early 1900s, they were playing on Broadway and their popularity soared across the country, especially as strip teases became the center point of these shows. However, within a century of their introduction, burlesque largely disappeared, due in part to morality policing by politicians and, later, the growth and accessibility of erotic films and the mainstreaming of nudity in the popular media. However, in the last couple of decades, burlesque has made a comeback, and it's arguably more popular than ever. So let's lift the curtain on modern burlesque. In today's show, I'm going to be speaking to a popular burlesque performer about how she got into the business, the role and meaning of nudity in her performances, how audiences react to her shows, how local laws limit what can and can't be included in burlesque performances, and more. My guest is Fancy Feast, a Brooklyn-based burlesque performer, writer, and sex educator. Her burlesque work has been profiled on NPR, Refinery29, and The Huffington Post. Her debut book, Naked, on sex, work, and other burlesques, is set for release next month. I can't wait for this conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. If you're a fan of this show, then I know you're hungry for sexuality knowledge. But if you're also looking to find a community of like-minded, sex-positive professionals, check out the Sexual Health Alliance. Shaw connects you with world-class experts and an active group of passionate, fun, and welcoming students. Shaw is at the forefront of sexuality education and hosts monthly live events, both online and in-person, with students from all over the world and from all types of backgrounds. They come together to learn, travel, connect, and sometimes form friendships. So, podcast fans, continue advancing your sexuality knowledge, have fun, and meet fantastic people in the process at Sexual Health Alliance. You can find their upcoming events and online certification programs at sexualhealthalliance.com. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Hi, Fancy, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. So we're going to talk all about the world of burlesque today. And as a starting point, I want to get your take on what the word burlesque actually means. And I think this is an interesting question because when people hear this word, they might conjure up some very different mental images. You know, for example, some people associate it with kind of old world glamour, with long gloves and feather boas and headdresses and sparkly costumes. Others associate it with some kind of strip tease or topless performance, or perhaps some type of body comedy act. So what does burlesque mean to you? And at its core, what makes something a burlesque performance? 
I think of burlesque as a little bit of all of the above now. So originally the word, I think, burlesco, to butcher the Italian, is about satire or send-up. And in particular, that was directed towards a send-up of the aristocracy, that it was sort of like humorous class drag meant to punch up. And since then, burlesque has sort of taken on a lot more meaning specifically around striptease performance, which was an element of burlesque variety shows along with, yeah, comedians and sideshow acts and things like that. Now it's just sort of all become about the tease, the glamour, the peel. But I've always been interested in the satire element as well. So I feel like the burlesque that I tend to prefer and the burlesque that I tend to perform really does still have class consciousness and satire at its core. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, kind of makes sense based on the the burlesque shows that I've seen. It, it has all of those elements in it in some way, but there's a lot of variability from one show to the next in terms of what aspect or element people choose to emphasize in it. So it's kind of this broad catch-all term that can mean different things <laughs> to different people. Absolutely. So how did you get into burlesque in the first place? In your book, you trace the roots of this back to a play that you did in high school. So tell us the story of how burlesque is something that really captivated you from a young age. So sluts and showgirls and wayward women have always been a particular interest of mine. And as a young person, as a minor, I would seek that out wherever I could find it. And I got to embody it for the first time when I was in 10th grade. My high school put on a production of Cabaret. And I was cast in the role of the old crone, which was a great role. I get my own song, but I really wanted to wear lingerie and do a chair dance. And so I fought with my musical director to get a demotion and join the Kit Kat girls as a chorus girl. And and embodying that sensuality and that kind of gender performance and having things be sleazy and seedy was so life-affirming. And I was like, well, whatever this is, this is the feeling that I want to capture for myself in my life. I want to chase this. Alas, it belongs to the Weimar era. Alas, it belongs to the world of candor and ebb. And then when I was in college, I had a very cool older friend, Sarah Marie, who took me to see burlesque shows in New York. And the first time I saw a show, I was like, well, that's it. This is the thing that I've been looking for. So I shifted the course of my life to move towards that. That's fascinating, and I appreciate you sharing that. Now, I found so many things about your book to be interesting, but especially in terms of how you talked about the nature of the relationship that you have with your audience as a burlesque performer. There were a couple of quotes that really stood out to me on this. So one was, you say, I am the one on stage undressing, but I'm not revealing myself to you. Rather, you are revealing yourself to me. I'm the one taking off my clothes, but in these moments, you are more naked than I am. Can you tell us a little bit about that? As a burlesque performer, what do you mean when you say your audience is getting naked for you? What's always struck me is that the idea of reveal is metaphor. Although I'm taking off my clothes, I have practiced this. I'm in my element. I am aware of my persona. I am fully embodying a very specific idea that I am in control of. And to me, all of those things are kind of armor or clothing. Like those are all decisions that I've made that really protect me, that allow me to participate in a very mediated, specific way. As opposed to the audience who is new, who is receptive, who is experiencing this imagining that they are the voyeurs, imagining that I am not gazing at them. They're vulnerable without realizing it. They are present for me in a way that 
I, as a performer, I'm in my performer zone, but they are exposed for whoever and whatever they are at the moment. I think that's so interesting because I think there's this tendency whenever we go see any kind of show and we're sitting in the audience, I think people think that the performers can't see them or (laughs) don't notice what's happening, but you're kind of putting on a show for the performer. You know, they're taking in your reactions and, you know, they're learning about and observing something about you. And so it's something that's an interesting perspective that I think people who are part of an audience just don't really think about. Absolutely. I think we get used to what it means to see performers on on a screen or maybe from the nosebleeds or far enough back that we feel safe and anonymous. But with burlesque in particular, I've always thought of burlesque as at best, an ongoing conversation between the people on stage and the people in the audience that we require their participation, we require their enthusiasm or their responses, that that really does guide the performance. So they are fundamentally part of it. It it wouldn't function if it were just performers performing on stage or during the pandemic when performers were doing acts in their rooms for live audiences on Instagram. Without the applause, it's just very eerie. <laughs> yeah, you know, something I found in my own experience attending shows is that sometimes it's more interesting to just look around and see what the audience is doing <laughs> rather than what's happening on stage. So I'm thinking of this show that I saw in Amsterdam that had a sexual component to it. And the show was a little, I don't know, I was actually a little bored with it. <laughs> so I was looking around at the audience and I see like, okay, there's this like married heterosexual couple over there and the husband's like really into it, but the wife is checked out. And then I see like these two guys who came together. They're kind of like bros, but they're watching this like sexual performance together. But there's kind of like this interesting homoerotic element to it that's happening. And Hot. so, <laughs> you know, it was just so interesting to me to look around and see how are different people interpreting this sexualized or erotic performance in some way. So tell us a little bit about some of the reactions that you observe. So when you see your audience members, can you tell that some of them are turned on, some of them are uncomfortable? Like, like what's happening? What are you seeing? It depends on the act. So yes, there are some acts that I have where there's an intentional emotional shift, where I've laid some groundwork, getting the audience comfortable with me, and then undermining that comfort. And so seeing things shift from being into it or being, yeah, being maybe turned on or entertained or whatever into being more sort of disquieted or or jarred by what they're seeing. I love that. I love I love to play with that. Or to have it work in reverse. I mean, being a fat performer, sometimes the first reaction that I get from the audience is either confusion or disappointment, maybe shock, disgust, like all sorts of things that they're not they're not used to seeing fat bodies presented erotically on stage. And so it's up to me to then transform whatever that experience is. Or, you know, they can continue to have their disgust and then I perform and that's fine. I still get paid. But watching people negotiate with that, with their own shame, like I'll see people not make eye contact with me at some times when I'm trying to connect with them. Uh, Some people will rush the stage like to move towards me. Some people shout things out in the middle of the acts. I've had people try to take costume pieces away from me. It's all sorts of stuff. It just comes from this really like interesting id like ooze, <laughs> you know, this, this whatever people are not are not acknowledging about themselves, it can come out watching a performance like that. 
Yeah, audience oozing. There's there's a lot coming out <laughs> during these. It's a lot of ooze. <laughs> <laughs> so something else you talk about in your book related to this that is so interesting is this idea of nudity and how when people talk about nudity, there's kind of this idea that either you're naked or you aren't, and that all nudity is the same. But you discuss how there are all kinds of different ways of getting naked and how nudity can have a variety of meanings. So for example, it can be a way of furthering a narrative. It can be a political statement. It can be a punchline. You know, not all nudity is the same. It can take on a lot of different meanings. So talk to us a little bit about this and how you use nudity in your own work and some of the different meanings it has for you and your audience. I think of nudity often as facilitating a facsimile of intimacy, that people feel like they really know me if they've seen me completely naked, which is so funny. And that when I am wearing makeup and shoes and a wig and lashes, and when I'm on stage and when I have stage light on me, then being fully naked isn't actually naked. It's not the same sort of connected, embodied, fundamental human experience that there's something other about it. And I think there are ways of being more naked with your clothes on. I mean, there are ways of being more vulnerable without taking your clothes off. Using that experience of of taking my clothes off or being naked as a metaphor for some other kind of transformation or some other kind of conversation that's happening between me and the audience is really what I strive for. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. And it's just really interesting to me. And as you were talking, I was thinking about this also through a cultural lens and how, you know, in the U.S., we tend to have a lot of body shame and anxiety and we're socialized in this way that nudity is bad and it's a private thing and those are your private parts. And so when nudity comes out as part of a performance, I think inherently for a lot of U.S. audiences, there's just kind of this titillating factor. And I think sometimes they miss the point of it because they're so distracted by the nudity because it's something that they're not used to seeing. It's a culture shock for them in some ways. It feels like they're doing something really taboo. But if you were giving the same performance in a more sexually open country, you know, I'm thinking about if you went to Berlin, Germany, and, you know, kind of did the same performance, it wouldn't be perceived in that same sort of way because they're not as socially inhibited when it comes to something like nudity. So the use of nudity and the way it's perceived by the audience, I think it's going to vary a lot depending on where you deliver performances like this. Absolutely. It is so culturally specific. And that is true within the U.S. and outside of the U.S. And some of the essays in my book discuss what it's like to strip in places that aren't New York, because even though we have a very repressive set of social mores in the United States as a whole, parts of New York are sort of a bastion or an exception to that. And so then when I'm going somewhere else, when I'm in rural America, my nudity is treated as as so much more stark. And in fact, I mean, it, it can't even fully be nudity because of the laws that are in place. I'm not trying to get anybody shut down. So having to cover more and even having what's exposed be so shocking. It's really interesting to see the relativism of nudity from place to place. Yeah. And I was going to ask you a question about this because, you know, in thinking about preparing for a show, a really important consideration are what are the local laws in that particular area, right? So you talked about when you're performing in New York, that's a little different from if you're performing in, say, like rural Tennessee or something like that, because you have to avoid running afoul of so-called indecency laws, and you can actually be fined and cited for violating those laws. So tell us a little bit about sort of how you balance that. Like when you're traveling around and giving performances in different areas, 
I'm assuming you have to kind of rethink your act entirely to make sure that it fits within, you know, what's allowed in that particular area, but that still allows you to do your art and get the same message across. It must be a challenging thing. I get extremely grumpy about censorship. (laughs) Yes, there are different states have different blue laws, things that you're allowed and not allowed to do. And, And a lot of times those laws are pretty incoherent and, you know, you can look at when those laws were put into place and you're like, okay, all right. Yeah, I'm sure the people in the whatever mid 1800s in Tennessee had nothing to do with what I'm doing now. It's really important to me to be communicating effectively with the performers and producers of the place where I'm performing. So I always want to be respectful of what a local production requires. And that is fundamentally more important to me than any sort of sensitive feelings about my own art, that being in relationship with different burlesque performers who are trying to work within more stringent censorship laws, that that is primarily where my values align. That said, if there's a way that I can do, what do they call it? What do you call it when somebody like pays their traffic fine in all pennies? It's it's like I obey the letter of the law, but not the intent of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so if there's a way that I can alter my act to make it obscene in a way that nobody could have predicted or like additionally challenging, if I'm going to have to cover up, then that tends to be where I will go. I'll see how much I can get away with while following all of the laws to the letter. Yeah, love that. And, you know, this has me thinking, and we're going to talk more about this in the next episode when we talk about your experience working in a sex toy shop. But I was thinking about how when I used to teach college courses on human sexuality, I would have a representative from a sex toy company come in and they would talk about some of their different products and how they worked and who they might be for. And they would give these presentations at colleges like all around the country, but they had to do the presentations differently based on what the local laws were. And I think I can't remember if it was Texas, but there were some more conservative states where they couldn't give their presentations in like a mixed sex setting. It could only be to women if they were going to be, if you're a woman talking about sex toys, it could only be with another group of women. It's just, you know, these laws are arbitrary. They don't make a lot of sense, but it's just one of the things like whenever you work in the sexuality space, you're constantly having to navigate like these arbitrary laws about obscenity. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing that now with the incoherent drag laws that are being pushed in in a bunch of different states. I was doing research about the actual statutes there, and it it doesn't make any fucking sense. I mean, not that not that <laughs> transphobia never does, but it was particularly bizarre to me the way that they were attempting to legislate this kind of stuff. So so yeah, I guess same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Now, you know, speaking of that as kind of like one of the aspects of preparation that goes into a burlesque performance, you know, when an audience goes to see one of your burlesque shows, you know, each act is only going to be a few minutes long. But there's so much, so many hours, days, weeks that go into those few minutes that the audience has no clue about. And I can relate to that from the standpoint that when I put out a new podcast or post a new video on social media, people are going to see or hear me for a few minutes. But good Lord, people have no idea how much behind the scenes effort went into that. The thought, the planning, the prep work, the creation. So walk us through what it's like for you. You know, what is the process of preparing for those few minutes on stage? You know, what does that look like? Oh, God. Well, first, my my heart goes out to the editors of the world. (laughs) I'm coming from the film world. That was my undergraduate degree. And so to me, burlesque is relatively plug and play. Like the preparation for burlesque seems so much easier compared to what I dealt with on film sets. That said, it still takes 
years sometimes to produce a new act. So there's everything to do with figuring out what your music is going to be, editing your music, what your costume is going to look like, and then either making your costume or having it made or some combination thereof. That requires a ton of engineering because things are designed to stay on until they must come off. So it's a very different way of of thinking about garments and layering. And then there's all the choreography that has to be done once you have your costume in place. There's all of the sort of physical preparation that goes into being performance ready. So whether that's making sure that you're sleeping enough or that you smell okay or that you have all of your stuff packed or that you're, you know, all the makeup that you have to do, the stretching, any prep work, it's just, it all has to get condensed as much as possible because we also live in a capitalistic society where most of us have day jobs. So it's like really using that hour, hour and a half before our our performance to make the most of it and to transform from these lay people into these fantastical archetypes for a fleeting three to five minutes and then returning back to ourselves. So yeah, there's a lot of mental prep and a lot of physical prep. And if you do it correctly, as with podcasting, it's seamless and people don't ever get a sense of all of the work that's been taking place. Yeah, it's kind of, I think you put it well, a a complete physical and psychological transformation where you're embodying this character who needs to be there for that period of time to convey the certain message to your audience. And yeah, it's, again, I can relate to it from the podcast standpoint, because I'm a different person when there's a mic in front of me. You know, I've talked about this before on the show that when there's a microphone, I just kind of slip into podcast voice. And it sounds a little different from regular Justin voice. It's a little deeper, a little smoother. I don't know why. It's just a thing that happens. I become a different person a little bit for whatever reason, but such is the nature of what we do. Uh, Thank you all for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, there's a lot that goes into this. And I want to ask, do you have a favorite show or performance that you do? Like, is there an act that stands out in your mind that you're very particularly proud of? There are acts that I am proud of for a variety of different reasons. One of my favorite acts right now, I don't think I even talk about it in the book. It's a talk and strip, which is something that isn't really done anymore. It's sort of an outdated style of performance, but it was very popular in the 40s and 50s. And the talk portion that I wrote is all about, like I'm telling the audience that I'm not going to take off my clothes. So this is sort of like I've, I've produced a poem for them instead, because poetry is the next best thing to striptease. And it's all about how I've really turned things around and how I've evaluated my life. And it's more important for me to be good and find a husband. And I'm doing all of this as I'm taking off my clothes. And so playing with that sort of tension there as the audience realizes like, oh, this is actually a striptease number and packing it with jokes so that there's never a moment to rest. They have to just keep staying with me through each beat. It's something that I'm very, very proud of and something that I really like to perform as often as possible. And then I've had acts that kind of come out as exorcisms, like things that really have needed to, that I've needed to get out of my system. So I have an act that's sort of like a, it's an NPR BDSM, Judaica number. I was working at the sex toy store when Fifty Shades of Grey was a thing. And it was making me insane to deal with that book day in and day out as like the center of my universe. So I made an act for a Hanukkah-themed burlesque show I was booked for, where I'm I'm listening to an NPR broadcast called Hanukkah Erotica that's like all about Judaica and sexuality. It's using the iconography of Hanukkah, but fitting that into sort of Fifty Shades of Grey fan fiction. 
It's a long walk, but it's it's an act that I'm very proud of. (laughs) (laughs) Talk and strip, Hanukkah, erotica. I I definitely want to see the show now (laughs) because it sounds great. So we've talked about a lot of different things with regard to burlesque. And, you know, burlesque is something that some people consider to be a form of sex work. Some people don't. Sex work itself is this very broad term, refers to a lot of different things. People use it in different ways. And some people think about sex work in this very hierarchical lens. Like they seem to think that some forms of it are more acceptable or respectable than others. And one example of this is that, you know, people seem to be somewhat more accepting of something like burlesque that they can view as an art form as opposed to like an explicit exchange of sex for money. So I wanted to ask if you can tell us a little bit about this issue of like burlesque and respectability and how that might differ or how people might treat burlesque performers differently from people who engage in other forms of sex work? Absolutely. I think one of the things that allows burlesque to be perceived as acceptable is that it's seen as old-timey. So it gets that sort of like vintage grandfathered in, oh, it must have been clean and good back in the day, which, you know, debatable. And then also the sense that if it is a hobby, if it doesn't pay well enough, if it is sort of ornamental, then it's not actually challenging to our understanding of labor. And it doesn't actually then threaten the status quo nearly as much. And I think part of what people get wrong when they're talking about like what is sex work and what isn't sex work is that sex work is treated as like the cool girl club or whatever, like like the cool person club. And then it's like, oh, are you in or out? As opposed to really being a framework for how people talk about labor that's criminalized. And burlesque sort of really is on the edge between what is perceived as socially acceptable and what is criminalized. And it is situational. It changes geographically. It changes from administration to administration. So it feels like if I were to speak from a place of, yes, burlesque is sex work, I would be assigning some level of hardship and marginalization that I don't experience. So I I don't want to center burlesque as like, the challenges I face are the ones most pressing to sex workers everywhere. I think that would be um, really unwise and unkind to do. But I don't want to separate myself from sex work to say, well, that stuff is dirty and bad and what we're doing is actually artistic because none of that is true. So it feels hard, particularly in discussions with civilians, to represent all of that nuance completely. Yeah, that's such a perfect answer. And it it encapsulates what I love to do on this show, which is to take complex subjects and really kind of get into the nuance and nitty gritty of them so that people think and are challenged to think differently about some of these things. And we could do a whole separate episode on, you know, sex work and definitions and meanings and all this kind of stuff because there is so much worth exploring there. But this has been absolutely fascinating, Fancy, and I can't wait for our next conversation to learn more about your experiences working in a sex toy shop. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Fancy. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and buy a copy of your new book? Oh, absolutely. So thank you so much for having me. This has been a treat. My name is Fancy Feast, just like the cat food, um, but not quite. Don't sue me. Fancy Feast Burlesque on Instagram is the best way to keep in touch with me and my upcoming performances. That's also where you can see a link to order my book. That said, my, my book Naked on sex, work, and other burlesques is going to be available from 
for booksellers all over the place. So bookshop.org is going to have that. You can go to the Hachette website, Amazon, if you're feeling nasty, um, you can get it (laughs) (laughs) anywhere books are sold. (laughs) (laughs) If you're feeling nasty. Well, thank you so much for your time, Fancy. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of this podcast. Visit my website, sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform or I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller if that's what we're still calling it, Twitter, X, whatever, Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Fancy's new book, Naked, on sex, work, and other burlesques. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>